Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we talked to Paula Tomko. She's the CEO of Central Virginia Health Services. They're a nonprofit community health clinic that provides care to many of the rural parts of our area. We'll talk about the recent outbreak at the Envoy Skilled Nursing Center in Fluvanna County and how rural areas are coping with COVID-19. Do you know how many people have tested positive in the center? At this point, I believe they have had 41 out of 46 people that were currently there test positive, residents, let alone staff. Plus, we sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow for an update on all the coronavirus news in the Charlottesville Albemarle area. Can you start off by introducing yourself? My name is Paula Tomko. I'm the CEO for Central Virginia Health Services. Um, CVHS, as we are often referred to, operates 17 health centers across Central Virginia. And um, last year, we saw more than 45,000 patients who came to us to access medical, dental, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. We have over 400 employees and are governed by a board of directors that is required to be more than 51% consumer patients. I've been with the organization since July 2002. My role as CEO is to make sure that we are always looking at ways that we can help more people improve their health through access to care and services. Um, We do that through collaborating with other organizations, educating the public about our services and who we are. Uh, which is, again, why I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to highlight the issues surrounding the pandemic crisis and rural communities. Despite celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, a lot of people still don't understand all that a community health center can provide to everyone in the community. So before the COVID-19 pandemic, what were some of the most common reasons that patients came in for appointments? Some of the main ones are health maintenance, chronic disease, accidents. Uh, Certainly in our site in Buckingham, we uh, have x-ray there. We're located, you know, out in a rural community. We've got a helipad for Pegasus to drop down and pick up patients. I think the most common health concerns we would see would be um, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, depression, anxiety, dental issues, family planning. Uh, We also have pediatrics at several of our sites, so we can see patients from all ages. Most of our providers are family practice providers, so they can see patients of all ages. So you all have offices in many rural parts of Central Virginia. Before the pandemic, was there anything distinctive about providing care in these areas? Uh, Sure. I think um, prior to Medicaid expansion, we really had to provide most of the subspecialty care for our patients because our patients could not afford to get to a specialist. And so maybe we could send them once and then our providers would have to manage that care after that point. I think unique to working in the rural areas is too, is also that transportation is a big issue for folks. There are some Medicaid or medical transportation, but they aren't always available, reliable, affordable. And so I think that's also an issue is that distance from local hubs for other healthcare services can become a challenge for patients. What misconceptions do you think people have about healthcare in rural areas? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think healthcare is lacking in the ability to keep up with technology and with modern medicine. Um, And in fact, many of our medical practices in rural areas do an excellent job of meeting healthcare quality measures, adhering to standards, 
getting necessary equipment to provide excellent care. Um, and we have a lot of partnerships with hospitals, university, and businesses that help achieve positive outcomes for patients. We, you know, have been working with telehealth, mostly with UVA, to be able to provide specialty care for folks so they don't have to go travel all the way to the city, to Charlottesville to get services. And we, uh, we've been trying to use it for psychiatry, for for behavioral health as well. But I think a lot of people think that we are rural doctors and haven't kept up. But as community health centers, we are held to often much higher quality standards than the private practice does based on our funding from the federal government that we receive. They require us to show documented improvement and in a lot of different quality measures related to the most common chronic diseases that people deal with, like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and things like that. And so we do need to keep up with the latest technology and offering to take care of our patients. When did you all at CVHS start preparing for COVID-19 or discussing it among your team? Sure. Um, In January, we started with early discussions and then started really ramping up in February. And by early March, we were mobilizing and making changes to our systems of care. We started trying to jump on trying to get the personal protective equipment, the PPE that you hear about ahead of the game. And our pharmacist was trying to anticipate what medicines might be in demand or needed. We worked with our lab to try and get test kits as early as we could from our lab testing company. And so we we have really been talking about it since January, been so impressed with how our team has really responded to this and and all the extra work that people put in. I often say we are working twice as hard to get half the amount of PPE that we need, if that. Um, We've really had to address our workflow and really think through how do we leverage the PPE that we have. We've really thought through, okay, who needs to see the patient? Who's going to wear this PPE, who's going to wear that? Because it is a struggle to get, but right now still the hand sanitizers, which is helpful because we're triaging curbside and seeing patients outside in their car. We don't have running water with soap for soap outside. So that hand sanitizer is really important for us to do that. As I say to people, we're getting it in, in dribs and drabs and enough to keep us going. But if any more disruptions happen to the supply chain, probably, you know, within a week or two, we'd really be struggling. The one thing we still have a shortage of, though, is the do-it-yourself masks or the cloth masks, because what we have gotten to now is people who are not doing face-to-face patient clinical on the staff side are being asked to wear cloth masks. And then patients who pass the screening tests outside and come into the building for care um, or to use the pharmacy services are being asked to wear a cloth mask. And so a lot of people, surprisingly enough, are not catching on to that, aren't coming with their mask. We have so many people that have volunteered and are sewing masks for us, and we appreciate it. And we need Anybody that wants to drop any off will take them. But, you know, at some point we were running out and we still want to provide our services to our patients. So I assume you all have had some COVID-19 patients at this point. How many COVID-19 patients have you seen? We have diagnosed and are caring for 62 patients between all of our sites at this point. We have lost some people affiliated with Central Virginia Health Services who have passed away from it, from complications of it, or who have really struggled with the hospital visits. So your New Canton location is about 10 miles from the Fork Union Envoy Skilled Nursing Center in Fluvanna, and there's been a pretty big outbreak there. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that center? Sure. Um, It's a 60-patient facility, and right now the typical patients are mostly there for rehab and long-term nursing home patients. While the Envoy is not part of our organization, we do treat those, those residents as patients. Our medical director is on staff there, and so we're very concerned about the outcome and, and what has happened there. Do you know how many people have tested positive in the center? At this point, I believe they have had 41 out of 46 people that were currently there test positive, residents, let alone staff. How did the virus spread so quickly there? Um, well, it was important to note that initially the infection was from a patient who was transferred from the hospital. At that time, testing wasn't readily available. We didn't understand how it was working. And so there wasn't a test to test the patient before he transferred. That patient, again, we talked about this, that they shed the virus before they are symptomatic, and he was transferred and diagnosed with COVID-19 two days after transfer. He had been quarantined, but soon, you know, after his diagnosis, multiple other patients developed symptoms. You know, I think nursing homes and assisted living facilities in particular are so vulnerable to this virus because the residents are in close proximity in the facility, whether it's dining together, social activities. And so I think every effort was made to have screening of everyone coming into the facility, including staff and limiting visitors, to prevent those interactions between the residents as soon as possible. But again, with this virus spreading before we we know we have it limited testing there was there was difficulty in controlling it and it's why these these types of facilities are so um, susceptible do you know if any of the patients there have been transferred to the hospital yes the facility and uva are working together to manage the patients the uh, pulmonologist and an um, infectious disease team from uva are working very closely with them coming down to see the patients evaluating them working through again telehealth with them back to uva to move those patients who need to be moved for treatment and managing those who are in recovery mode or being maintained at the facility and I believe UVA has even been supplying some nursing staff to uh, to help them as well, because that's, you know, this impacted the staff as well, too, of becoming testing positive. But I think UVA and Envoy are working well together to make the best of this awful situation. What impact does an outbreak like this have in a rural area? Is it likely to spread? Like, what impact on the families? You know, that was our concern of Buckingham, that when we've heard that it was, when we you know, when we saw what was going on, we immediately ordered more test kits and and brought some in from one of our sites that had more available because so often in these communities, places like this, everybody works and lives in the same community and is family related. So we were anticipating that people who maybe got in to see residents who lived there before they shut this down, people who are family and friends with staff members who were maybe interacting beforehand, people who were delivery drivers, all of those things could be impacted. And so that was important for us to be able to do testing to these people so that we could help control it as soon as possible. You know, one of the things we talked about in healthcare is having speedy testing for healthcare providers is important because as soon as we send someone home, if we know if it's COVID or not, it's easier to bring them back because we, we need to be able to keep our staffing up so that we can deal with all the issues that are going on. Virginia has recently started collecting data about the race of people with COVID-19. 
after other states have reported disproportionately high rates of mortality among African-Americans and Latinx people, how diverse are your patients? Sure. We, um, based on our 2019 data that we reported, 39% of our 45,000 patients were African-American and 12% were Latinx. Are you all concerned that COVID-19 might be more severe for those patients? Yes, certainly. Um, and, and I think that goes to a lot because of the racial disparities that we've seen in our regular health resources as well. I mean, that's historically been documented that, that there's disproportionate rates of that based on access to health insurance, to services, based on cost and location. And so I think it will be worse due to less medical resources being available. I mean, I think it's only going to exacerbate what we already see. A lot of the places that have reported this really high disparity in mortality by race have been in cities. Do you all expect the impact of the virus to be different for rural communities of color? I think it will be even, I, I think it really will be worse uh, in the rural communities because there's less hospitals, which means there's less equipment, ICU beds, um, whatever they're gonna, it's farther to travel. It's harder to get there. It's harder to access those services. So I think, given that, I think we can expect to see worse outcomes in the rural communities. Is there anything like people in the community can do to to help those communities or to help you all better serve them? Um, I think folks can you know check on their neighbors is always important. If um, you know community rural communities have a very strong sense of community and look out for each other, and I think there are ways you can do that while still maintaining social distance. You know churches are often very important in the lives of community rural communities, but it's important that they you know are following the guidelines and not even having some of the small churches meeting together but looking out for each other and trying to stay connected as much as they can. But I think they can be good leaders as to how to take care of some of the folks in the rural community and make them aware of what they need to be look on the lookout for and, and looking out for those that you know do have maybe a potentially higher risk uh, for complications from this than others. And once someone does become sick or doesn't feel well, isolate, have a plan. Have a plan for how you're going to isolate in your house if you don't have an option to go somewhere else. If someone does become ill, is there a bathroom and a bedroom that they just use to stay by themselves versus sharing the same bedroom and bathroom, kitchen dishes, have place for them to get their, their dishes without having to um, you know, share with everyone else. So I think that's part of it too, is having a plan and being prepared that when this happens, that you can quickly put that into, into action. What misconceptions do you think people have about COVID-19? What do you want people to know? I think um, on average, it takes over five days to become symptomatic. And for two days before you have those symptoms, you're shedding the virus and infecting others. And so I think we've, we've come to find out about 40% of the transmission happens in the time before one develops symptoms. So socially separating is important. You know, we all get it. Once you start sneezing, coughing, you don't feel very like, oh, stay away from me. I might have COVID. But what you don't realize is two days before that, thinking back, who all did you see, touch, talk to, interact with? And so I think that's important. Again, separate, wear a mask, wash your hands, try to not touch your mouth, eyes, nose, 
wearing a mask also cuts down touching your face and mouth because that mask is is on there it, it takes it may take some getting used to but it is well worth getting accustomed to it are there any of these things that are particularly challenging for any of your patients um, sure. I, the lack of hand sanitizer and antibiotic wipes, I think, is making it very difficult for many of our patients to take care of things. For example, like we can order hand sanitizer from the office supply store because we have a healthcare connection and they put a restriction on that only healthcare providers can purchase these supplies because they're in such demand. But yet there are a lot of small businesses that where they may be essential and they cannot get these services and they're still dealing with the public. And so I think that has been an issue of understanding that. And we're also facing that, you know, a severe shortage of things. And we were lucky enough to get donations of wipes and hand sanitizer from some different uh, local schools, community groups that have dropped it off. That shortage can really affect regular folks. Have you seen many of your patients lose their health insurance or experience loss of income? We haven't seen that yet, but we are anticipating that we will have a whole new group of patients who will need our services as we work through the economic challenges um, that's facing the country right now. Because we do offer a sliding scale fee, we participate with any insurance if you don't have any insurance. And so I anticipate that we will have to get the word out that we are here to help folks. We are accepting new patients. We have staff that will help folks who may be eligible for Medicaid through these times that we can help get them enrolled in that. But we, you know, we are a safety net provider and we do have ways to help you if you don't have insurance. And so one of the good things we always say about coming to a community health center is that because we participate with all these programs, we can stay your provider for life. You don't have to necessarily switch when your employer changes insurance or you change jobs because maybe you uh, change jobs frequently. You don't have to always figure out who's in your network. We're pretty much in everybody's network. Thank you so much for all the important work that you all have always been doing, but especially right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. On behalf of the staff, I say they're the real heroes in this. (laughs) Again, we appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk about what community health centers are doing in the rural communities. Paula Tomko is the CEO of Central Virginia Health Services. For more information, go to cvhsinc.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, we talk to Elliot Robinson, the editor of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, Elliot. How are you doing? It's, it's uh, getting a little bit better. We took a day off on Monday. It was the weekend. We were scheduled to have a three-day weekend anyway, and we decided that just for our own relative sanity, it was a good thing just to take that day off anyway. Although it was just 24 hours, it made a world of difference for the entire newsroom. Let's talk a little bit about what's changed here in the past two weeks. How many cases do we have now? Locally, as of yesterday, we have 199 cases here. In the state, they updated the numbers Thursday morning. 
there was uh, 6,889 cases in the state. How does that measure up to neighboring states? We're somewhat in this mid-range if we don't have a ton of cases like other places like New York, for example, but we don't have a vanishing few like some of the more rural states that are starting to see that uptick. So, and it looks like our social distancing methods have really helped in flattening the curve. So we're not getting close to the peak that we were, that was the worst case scenario, which is good and shows us that we need to really keep this up for a little while to keep those numbers down. How many people have died so far in Virginia? In Virginia, there has been 208 deaths as of Thursday morning, and uh, the health district here locally has reported seven. In a lot of other states, they've been reporting pretty major disparities by race in terms of how severe COVID-19 is. Are we seeing that in Virginia? Can you tell us about how the state is tracking that data? The state is tracking it. They have a website where they have statistics as uh, being updated. A lot of it has been a bit spotty. Like currently, if you look at hospitalizations on the state health department's website, they have a part that's broken down by race, but still the largest category is the race isn't reported. But from what local health districts have seen and then what the officials have announced in some of the press conferences said, it's already clear that disproportionately Black and Latino people are affected by it out of proportion with their population in the state. So what about in our health district? Are they reporting data by race? Yes, locally, they've, uh, they've been breaking that down about once a week. The last time that they did that was on Friday, so there should be another update with all of those statistics uh, coming uh, this, this Friday, the 17th. Where are the cases in our area? In our area, the largest number of cases is now in Fluvanna County, and after that is uh, Albemarle and then the city of Charlottesville. What do we know about the local economic impact? Do we have any local unemployment numbers? We have some partial unemployment numbers that things change in between their normal reporting periods, but uh, locally in Albemarle, between March 21st and April 4th, there have been more than 3,000 claims filed, and for comparison, the week before, there was only 12. And in the city, we have more than 2,000 claims between March 21st and April 4th, and the week before, in comparison, there was only 17 in the state, they had mentioned that there had been 306,000 claims for unemployment, which was equal to all of 2018, all of 2019, and then 2020 from January to early March. So people who have been recently unemployed, what resources are available to them? Are people in Virginia able to get unemployment right now quickly? It's been just a wide range. I've, I've heard that people have been able to get unemployment relatively quickly. Some people are still facing some challenges. I believe we aren't as bad as some states where it seems like the system's completely broken down. Hopefully, it will work out 
pretty well and get people to where they need to be as far as getting those unemployment payments and getting the additional ones that have been authorized. And then also, if anyone has direct deposit, the stimulus money from the federal government should have arrived by now. It's only about $1,200 at the base level, but at this point, for so many people who are out of work, any little bit goes a long way. Yeah, and if you don't really need that extra $1,200, there are plenty of great organizations and funds you can donate to right now, and a lot of folks for whom $1,200 can make a pretty huge difference in their lives right now. For more information about some places to donate, check out supportcville.com. The UVA Biocomplexity Institute released a new model suggesting, like we've been talking about, that the social distancing is working. And we won't see a peak until later in the summer, like July or August. So obviously, that is great news because it means that fewer people are going to die from this. How are local and state lawmakers responding to that news? Everyone's a a bit optimistic and we're also still a bit cautious because there's still the issue of, yes, things are going well now and that's because we have done things to flatten the curve, but it shouldn't be a signal to us that, okay, everything's going better so we can get back to normal in a few weeks because there's still just a long road ahead of us. There's still nationally and globally cases are still growing at a very high rate, so we really have to have a little bit more patience and ramping things back up might come in phases until there is a, a vaccine or some other breakthrough happens that maybe for once things get down to a certain level, we can open some things back up so there's a sense of normalcy, but then we'll have to contract back in and stay at our homes again for a while until numbers get back down. So there's this, there's going to be this delicate dance that our officials are aware of and they're working on that. So hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more soon from the, the state about what will be our next steps. Have you all heard anything from UVA about how this new model might impact whether students are able to come back in the fall? I think everything's still a bit up in the air about the fall. That A lot of people, I guess, they don't want to make decisions just yet because they don't want to cancel everything now and then everything's fine in time for August or fully commit to saying everything will be business as usual in August and then having to reschedule some things a a second time. But I know this has to be probably a a challenge for a lot of people. um, It's about the end of the traditional rent period here in Charlottesville. I know there's some landlords that are expecting students to either renew their leases or move into new houses. And then those leases start between late May and July 1, and now there might be a bit of a holding pattern there. So there's still an awful lot of uncertainty. Let's talk a little bit about UVA's response. There's the academic division and the health system. So let's talk about the academic division. The university is a major employer. What impact has the virus had on those workers? The contract employees, a lot of them had been laid off. So the university has set aside a special fund for them. There's also funds available through the Community Foundation here. And then the the university also just mentioned that there will be a a hiring freeze and a salary freeze and a lot of the senior leadership is taking a pay cut. And I know it seems a bit confusing to some people given that there's such a large endowment at the school, but 
that endowment goes to a lot of different things. There are a lot of funds tied up in different buckets, and they can't just raid it to get some of the stuff accomplished. So it's a fluid situation there, and the university has understood that a lot of their employees are struggling, especially since it is such a large employer, and it's just going to be a, a painful period all around for them. So let's talk a little bit about how data and information about the pandemic is being shared with the public. The governor has been briefing everyone on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The Thomas Jefferson Health District is going to start releasing case data three days a week instead of every day. What do you all think of this frequency? I've been going a bit back and forth for that. I can see uh, the reasoning for doing things every day and also from slowing it down a bit is that we don't want people to get fatigued by every, all the news that is happening and then you still want to also give them as much information as possible and then there's just certain times where it's it is a unfolding crisis but it's not like a normal emergency like a fire or an earthquake where there are some days where not a lot has changed from the officials level so i can see why they pulled back a bit on having a lot of this information released. And it also gives them a bit of a break and gives them time to give us more detailed information. How are you personally digesting all of the mostly bad news these days? For the most part, at when I reach a point that I know that I am off for the day or off for the weekend, I do as much as I can to just switch everything completely off that I look at Netflix instead of looking at the news or spend more time with my dog. I, I think I just need that moment of just not thinking about it to help me get back to the next week to move forward. Elliot Robinson is the editor of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. If you have concerns or questions about the coronavirus in our area, tweet us at CVL Soundboard. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. Catch us at CVLSoundboard.org. <laughs>